From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode, we get to talk to Allison Jaslow, Executive Director of Iraq Afghanistan Veterans for America. We talk about veterans' health care, veterans' hiring, and her two tours of duty in Iraq. It's an important conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's rock and roll. Here's Allison Jaslow. Allison Jaslow, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you for having me, CR. <laughs> Let's start kind of at the beginning. Talk to me about your background. Where'd you grow up? Um, where are you from? Uh, so I think, as you know well, I'm from the D.C. area. Um, I was born in Alexandria, but actually graduated high school in Arlington, Virginia. Um, so though I don't live in D.C. currently, I'm one of the few people uh, like yourself that that people look shocked at when they say, oh, really? No, you're actually from here. Um, <laughs> My family isn't in the the, uh, the business of the town, though. My stepdad actually worked at Safeway for 23 years. <laughs> no way. Um, so. so how'd you come about joining the service? You know, I consider myself the only success story I know of career day. So I, in the eighth grade, it was the year that you did field trips instead of having people come into your classroom. Uh, so as a student in Arlington, Virginia, um, I checked a lot of interesting things. I think one of them was uh, a hotel, maybe some other sort of fancy restaurant where you got free stuff or so my research told me. Um, But I actually ended up with none of my choices uh, but getting on a bus to Fort Myer, Virginia. Um, And I think that, you know, service is something that clearly not only is still in my blood today but was then. And that trip to Fort Myer is something that sparked that initially. And ever since, you know, there were times in in high school, I didn't even know if I wanted to go to college, but I 100% knew I wanted to be in the Army. Huh, interesting. So you did um, two tours in Iraq. I did. Can you, you know, what you do there? What was your job? So the first time I deployed was um, I literally got on a plane the day after Thanksgiving in 2004. We deployed to uh, Taji, Iraq that time. I was actually attached to a reserve unit out of Bay City, Michigan, um, which was an interesting experience, but I was a platoon leader. Um, my platoon, which was supposed to be, and for the first about 60 days, oversaw a number of warehouse operations, um, got what you call reclassified as a gun truck or convoy security platoon. Um, so Kellogg, Brown and Root, which is a subsidiary of Halliburton at that time, had taken over the warehouse operations that we had. And so we spent the rest of the deployment um, doing convoy security for logistics convoys. So all through, like, not only just the Baghdad area of operations, but like Sadr City. Um, my soldiers actually spanned the entire uh, theater, we call it, like all the way down into Kuwait and out to Syria. Um, wow. I was doing double duty still being accountable for all the warehouses, even though the, the contractors the were contractor there. The contractor took care of that. Yeah, sort of so stuff. my my convoy uh, time was like, much closer in in terms of like the uh, the Baghdad AO and then just north to a place called Balad. And so you come back from deployment number one and then what happens? Uh, so my first deployment was 
pretty intense. I was stretched thin. I lost uh, a buddy of mine, and we lost another soldier. And it's just one of those, um, you know, honestly, I really appreciate that I have the emotional constitution that I do. So I wouldn't say that it was uh, uh, emotionally draining because of the violence or the bullets that I was dodging. But so much was asked of me at 22 that it really took a toll. Um, But when you're 22 and 23, you're also pretty resilient. And when I was back in Fort Carson, Colorado, um, you know, you try and decompress, spend a little bit of time on the ski slopes. And I was really ready to sort of hop on the plane when um, we got orders again. And and we knew we'd be going, I guess, late 2006 and ended up deploying uh, January of 2007. So now you're the executive director of Iraq, Afghanistan Veterans for America. What's IAVA's mission, what's your role, you know, kind of how do you fit into the public policy space here? Well, IAVA is the leading voice of the post 9-11 generation of veterans. Um, I consider it one of the honors of my lifetime to take not only my experience in the Army um, and being deployed to Iraq uh, and that experience and my knowledge of the troops, but also my experience in politics and on Capitol Hill and on campaigns and essentially like marrying those two chapters of my life to advocate uh, on behalf of a community that I belong to. So, you know, we were started in 2004 when our founder came back from Iraq himself. Um, You know, he tells a great story about how he was in Baghdad one day um, and a week later in Brooklyn. Um, At that time, soldiers didn't have body armor and they uh, weren't decompressing us in the way that they needed to. Um, it was also back when we thought the war was gonna be you know, a few months and we right. sent everybody at once. Right. Um, so he started IAVA literally because he felt like our generation of veterans and or the service members that were still on the ground out there um, didn't have a voice in Washington. As part of your uh, kind of recent work, you've kicked off this She Whom Born the Battle campaign. I actually happened to be at the VA the other day and saw the sign, almost sent you mm-hmm. a picture of it. Um, tell me about what, where, you know, what's the campaign? How did that come about? And, uh, you know, what's, what's the next steps? Well, the reason it's called She Who Born the Battle is because it's a play on the VA's current motto, um, which is gender exclusive. Uh, it says um, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and his widow and his orphan. Um, it's an Abraham Lincoln quote. I understand the history uh, of the line, um, but when you're looking at a VA that has such incredible uh, cultural barriers when it comes to women taking advantage of the services there, IVA as an organization feels like you can't really bust through those, those uh, cultural barriers if you don't change the culture from the top down. That includes changing the motto. Um, interesting. So I, my guess is we're going to have some more discussions here about the VA, but one couple of kind of veterans questions. Sure. I was reading that the unemployment rate amongst veterans compared to others in the economy is 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 much lower. Now, I assume this is a concerted effort from business and government to kind of make this happen. But is that your experience? Um, is that half the story? Is that the whole story? What's the employment situation in so a couple of things. It is in a better place than it was, you know, maybe uh, eight years ago. IAVA was one of the leaders in the fight for the Vow to Hire Heroes Act, which you may remember when mm-hmm. you were on the Hill. CR. Yep. Um, what I would say is, is you have to sort of break down the data, um, mm-hmm. especially by generation. You know, look a little closer at what uh, it says about the most current veterans who are coming back. 
it's getting a little better. I mean, it's with the GI Bill, um, we're giving many soldiers who are coming back, who are getting out, uh, many more tools and options, not just a bachelor's degree, but you know, having apprenticeships um, and making sure that they can also support their family while they're going through those programs as well. Um, you know, I would say that one of the biggest challenges that I still hear from veterans every day, in fact, I was just in Silicon Valley recently, is um, there's still a big challenge in translating their skills uh, and getting them in the door at, at companies. You know, if you think about it, if you were probably better set up here in D.C. by being able to do an internship and build relationships and open doors for yourself to get a job on the Hill. You know, I'm incredibly fortunate that I was able to move back to D.C. Uh, my last year of college and intern here myself, which helped me set myself up for success when I got out. Um, but most veterans are just walking out and fumbling through it. And I, I believe that many of them, if they have the moxie to fight in through doors, aren't landing in the places that they really deserve because there's A, a translation or not the right relationship building that, that most people in the professional world depend on. Yeah, and I suspect just even something simple like titles are different. If you're a captain, people don't know what that means and how does that relate to you know, whatever business they're running, <laughs> things exactly. like that. Um, it was a while ago I actually saw uh, someone, uh, oh, oh, it was a client of ours, um, military.com, which actually works is part of monster.com, mm -hmm. and they actually helped try to get the resumes to match uh, language-wise, right? Yes. So if you did X, Y, and Z, and these were your skills, how can we translate that so, you know, employers may actually understand what you know how to do? I guess the question, next question I'll go with and is you are hearing from folks who are still coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan these days. How are they feeling? What are the biggest kind of problems they have coming back and integrating? Um, it's been a long war and, you know, there are many people in harm's way still. So I just kind of wondered, you know, what are the, what are the top level things? I think for a while it was you know, our initial medical care coming back was not enough. Uh, people remember Walter Reed problems and things like that. It feels like some of that stuff's been solved, but but kind of what's your take on it now? Well, I appreciate you mentioning that the the wars are still ongoing mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the challenges right now is, is, A, to get people to remember that the wars are still going on, but because the wars aren't raging anymore, um, people are all too often forgetting about the people who are not only currently fighting but but did recently fight and i think that one of the biggest challenges we have actually is maintaining focus on it like it shouldn't take a crisis at the va to make sure that this population of brave americans in an age when we are asking less than one percent of the population to serve in our wars that they are coming back and sort of like drifting into the woodwork and that's when you continue to see like additional complications. That's when you find out that some of them have mental health issues that have gotten so bad that they are on the brink of committing suicide or have committed suicide. That's mm -hmm. when you find out on the back end that they are addicted to opioids. Um, you know, or you find somebody in economic duress literally because they can't figure out how to translate their skills to get the job that they need or that their family um, was relying on them to get when they left the, the military. So I'm going to pull on that string uh, a little bit. Um, I think I just saw a tweet from you a little while ago that talked about the women's suicide rate and that it's significantly higher. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, compared to civilian women, uh, women veterans are killing themselves two and a half times or 250% more than civilian women are. Uh, it's something that we don't know enough about. 
Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are looking closely at firearms and access and or the average veterans, you know, comfort or the desire to have a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think that what it underscores is that veterans are a unique population that from whether we're trying to get them employed, whether we're trying to educate them, whether we're trying to just take care of their uh, like everyday health needs, um, that as a nation, if we want to make sure the veterans as are best supported, that we have to really understand that they have unique needs that are very different from the average American, especially when you're talking about people who've gone two and three times to war. Yeah, I, I mean, candidly can't even imagine it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so staying in the in the health space, you mentioned opioids. Um, it's a national crisis, as everyone has talked about. Um, but is it affecting vets differently? So there's a couple of ways that it's affecting vets um, differently. And then there's, and this is in my view, just sort of anecdotally, um, I think some of the areas of the, the country that are suffering the most from the opioid crisis are also disproportionately filling the ranks of the military. Oh, that makes some sense. So yeah. that's that's one piece. Um, Outside of that, though, you know, I'm not the only vet um, or person in the military who can tell you that you could walk into a military clinic and get almost any prescription you wanted to get away, like to have the pain taken away. Um, it was all too easy, not only when we were in the military, but, you know, I actually have a really close friend from uh, ROTC who got out and he was blown up in a Humvee. One guy was lost, uh, his interpreter lost his legs. and. He was tormented when he came back by that experience and essentially survivor's guilt. And when he went to the VA, was able to get sort of any kind of pain meds to dull the pain. Um, and he ultimately, uh, I don't even know if it's, it's fair to say that he committed suicide, but was, you know, uh, lost his life because of that struggle with all of the medications, with his mental health issues. Um, and. I will say that I know the VA has aggressively attacked this issue for probably the last three or four years, Um, arguably a little behind the power curve in the sense that once you already have a number of addicts on your hands, it's really hard to to rein it in, but they are at least doing what they can to reduce the amount of opioids they're prescribing. Um, But the private sector is still um, having challenges with veterans' patients, and they're still being surprised by the fact that we generally have more complex injuries, especially if they're wartime wounds, um, than the average civilian who's seeking opioids. For a a knee replacement or, you know, back injury only. This is complicated um, stuff, I would imagine. So you've mentioned the VA, you know, whether it relates to uh, women's health or opioids or whatever else, that feels like a big, giant Titanic. How do you turn that thing around? Or or kind of how do you focus your thoughts on, on how to you know, present some ideas to them on how to move forward? You know, I think for whatever it's worth, um, I, I hate that it takes a crisis, but it's such a national crisis that, you know, these types of problems are things that you have to lock elbows with community to community. And I think that that's all we really can do in a number of ways is, is be aware. Um, when it comes to mental health specifically, the more we destigmatize that, the more those issues aren't, um, you know, sort of behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. So when you prescribe somebody uh, an opioid for a back injury, um, you're not overlooking other needs that they have, or um, you know, especially like something like PTSD. But it's been so stigmatized recently. I think we even dealt with it 
you know, in the, the presidential campaign where, uh, unfortunately, our current president, but I definitely believe that this was a, um, it's an error that anybody would make, uh, sort of made a reference to a, a group of gentlemen that, you know, they're really strong, so they're not dealing with sort of the mental health issues that many soldiers are. Um, but I'll tell you from firsthand experience, like, there were young women who surprised the heck out of me who were ready to jump up in a turret and, you know, fight. And then there were men who would come down with illness and totally surprise you because they're 35 and they've got a bunch of stripes on their mm -hmm. shoulder. Um, the fact of the matter is, is when you get over there and you get confronted with those issues, that's when you really know if you're ready for it or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's again, um, I'm laughing because it's a little uncomfortable, but man, it is, it is not something I can really even get my head wrapped around. And I feel incredibly lucky that that's the case. So I have a couple other questions for you. Um, sure. One is super topical. Okay, so right. we've got this flag situation. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, the president has made some uh, comments. A bunch of athletes are taking knees. Um, what do you think? You know, from a personal perspective, um, I feel like I fought for the rights for of people to protest, whether it's women's marchers um, or NFL athletes. I think some of the NFL athletes have done it in what I feel like is a respectful fashion. I think some arguably have maybe gone across the line and maybe almost been self-defeating in, in some of the tactics that they've chosen. Um, I also personally like to put my hand over my heart and stand and, and when it's the appropriate environment, still salute the flag. Um, I think our, our generation of veterans, or at least the members that IAVA represents, are so diverse. Um, in fact, our generation is much more diverse than the older generation of veterans that I think that for anybody to put in one box what vets feel would be unfair uh, and lacking a lot of perspective as well. So I think that there's a, you know, many older veterans who have spoken up very strongly about this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of those same people would also be in favor of a flag burning amendment, but we you know, I served in the military with people from many disadvantaged communities across the country, many people of color who are dealing with the struggles that a lot of these NFL players are giving a voice to right now. And I would encourage people, honestly, to, to think about, especially the service members who are serving right now, they don't have a voice. It's their job to fall in line and, you know, to ruck up and to go fight for us. And there very well could be people um, who are serving today who can 100% relate to what um, what the the NFL members who at least started uh, us sure. on this path were trying to advocate for yeah. or just shed light on. This conversation uh, is complicated but also has changed a bit. Uh, you know, it has taken a bit of a winding route here. Oh, it started yeah. as a protest over um, police violence and has now become a, a larger discussion. Um, so uh, I'm going to ask, this is a personal question. And sure. I think other people probably have this question, or maybe I'm the only one, who knows. So when I'm an airport in an airport and I see a service member, I often say something like, thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. But it feels so, like, wimpy and weak and it feels like i should say more but but i don't know what else to say there um and i didn't serve and i'm incredibly yeah. grateful for people who protect my family and make sure that you know my kids are tucked in warm at night and things like that um what do you think about that is that a, the, is that the right thing to do or is that the weird thing to do or is that you know something in between 
Uh, well, first of all, I guess thank you for acknowledging that you don't feel like it's enough or that you're <laughs> struggling with it. I mean, cause... well, I definitely don't because you see somebody, you know, like, like, okay, that is a 20 year old person, yeah. man or woman. And you usually see them in the airport. The reason I bring the airport up is because oftentimes service members travel in, in, in yeah. some kind of uh, clothing that distinguishes them yeah. from other people. And I think like, oh my God, like they're going to do something awesome or coming back from doing something awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and thank you for your service. It seems like kind of a wimpy, wimpy thing. So I, first of all, the most noble among us, I think aren't doing it for the thanks. That's mm-hmm. the first thing to always remember. Um, I should probably spend a little time uh, thinking about an alternative that I suggest to somebody who maybe wants one like yourself. Um, but what I will say is, is, you know, I actually had a close family friend puff up at me recently when I mentioned this to him. But I do think that while a lot of um, people thank us for our service, and I think are, are thankful, I think that not as many people um, who feel like they appreciate our service really value our service. And so I would say is, is you know, maybe you don't have the right answers besides thanks, but uh, on an individual level, I would challenge everyone to to learn a little more about the population, learn a little more about what the sacrifice means, um, so you can really like value our service at a different level. And again, it's probably uncomfortable for people to even think about that or explore that, but you know, try and wrap your head around. I tell people all the time, like I actually don't know what it's like to be my mom. Like I was overseas, and I knew when I was going out yeah, of the gate, sure. And I knew when I was in danger or not. I knew how prepared I wasn't or not. I got on a plane. My mom had no idea when I was coming back, what was happening to me minute by minute while I was over there. Um, And so I'm honest with myself that I don't even know what kind of emotional roller coaster she was riding. Yeah. Um, But there's there's a it's multidimensional. Sort of the the sacrifice and the experience of those who especially, you know, have have carried the burden at least over the last 16 years. Okay, but here's a question I ask everybody. Um, in D.C., you know, pick someone's brain or try to get a new job, you'd get coffee with somebody. Yeah. So if you were to get coffee with one or two people today, let's assume your schedule cleared up, which I'm sure it's not clear, but let's assume it cleared up. Who would you have coffee with today? So is this for career advice or just to hang out with? Whatever you want. I mean, in the, in the past, we've had presidents. We've had dead presidents. We've had alive people. You know, just if you could pick somebody's brain right now, you're – sitting in your situation, who would it be? You know what's funny is that my situation has changed so much <laughs> in like the last year. Um, I'll toss a, just a couple at you and you can do with these what you may. Um, <laughs> I'll say as somebody who has at times explored my career next steps as, as a staffer, um, I think Dan Turton is one of the few people who, you, I really appreciate people who you sit down and they don't tell you their view on the world and mm-hmm. like what they think you should do, but mm-hmm. help you like have a conversation and explore what is the best path for you. Um, and for those who don't know, Dan Turton runs government affairs for GM now, GM. right? Yep. Yeah. To the extent that I can give a shout out to my former boss, uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, uh, the plug I would tell your listeners about her is that there are a whole lot of people who don't listen very well in this town. And so if you want to have a cup of coffee with somebody who you feel like uh especially a member of Congress who isn't talking at you or, you know, running on at the mouth and is actually truly listening to you. Maybe it's because she's a former reporter, um, but I guarantee you you'll get that out of Sherry Bustos. 
All right, those are pretty good answers. Inside the park answers. Okay, so Allison Jaslow, thanks for joining us at 14th and G. I want to say thank you for your service, but we're working on some new terminology. I really do appreciate your leadership for our veterans, and um, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, caring. I want to thank Allison for coming by 14th and G. It's always good to talk to her. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach me, you can email me at wooters at mc-dc.com. You can always find me on Twitter at crwooters. And I look forward to seeing you next time at the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G. Thank you.